welcome to another episode of What You Wearing. On this episode, we're going to tell you all about the mesmerizing Anna Wintour. And the sleeve known as the Dolman Sleeve. Now, now, listen, it's the Dolman, yes. not the Doe Man. Yes, please don't confuse it. So please make sure you get that right. And we're going to tell you all about the Holt, Holt looks look. that we see out in the world. Hello, hello. This is Mark Allen Harmon. And William Clark Jr. And you are listening to... What You Wearing! Okay, so this is our second attempt at a beautiful, amazing fashion podcast. That's right. And we did take the first one, and we sent it around to a bunch of our friends and peeps. Overwhelming response. Overwhelming response that we were brilliant. We like that word. Yeah, brilliant. Especially if we don't say it. <laughs> <laughs> we call each other brilliant all day long. But to actually be able to have something that we think is going to make a difference for people and that they might enjoy, to actually have people enjoy it. Absolutely. Felt very, I don't know, it felt very, I felt relevant again. I don't know. We're back. We're back. <laughs> I mean, we're going to be back, so get ready. Don't this, be scared. Don't be scared, or be scared if you need to be. <laughs> uh, so, it has, the weather's finally changed. Thank God. And what I've noticed is cashmere is back in the relevance. We love cashmere, especially we, if it's baby cashmere. I mean, now, we'll have to explain at some point what the difference is right, between baby a, cashmere and cashmere. Whole... It's not an actual baby, right? No. No. no, and do and no animals die in the creation. No, of no, no. It's a shaving. It's a. Sh- it's so a it's shaving. not like you're eating veal if you have baby cashmere. No, no. It's a shaving of the of the animal. And they love being shamed. It makes it it's shamed, not shamed. No shaved. Shame. They're lighter. They're cooler. You know. And who doesn't like just to look a little leaner too? Like when mm-hmm. they look in the mirror, they like lose twenty pounds. Imagine if we could all just trim off all the stuff that makes us look round. That would be amazing. <laughs> But it's not going to happen. No, I mean, it could happen. Anyway, so you know, my little house, I live in a little house in, in Studio City, and it is so cold that I have to now turn the heater on. And if I don't, I wake up and it's 59 degrees in my hallway. And you know what? Honestly, it's crazy for me being a New Yorker where I thought I could handle any cold, and now it is not even December oh. in Southern California. And I have to turn the heat on. So that's, You have gotten soft, William. That's it. You've I, gotten soft. I'm in denial, but that's just crazy. You have gotten soft. And I've got, I pulled out this big stack of these old cashmeres. I've got a couple helmet laying cashmere hoodies. That oh, are like, you poor thing, slumming it. Slumming it. And they're like triple, they're like triple thickness. They've got hoods on them and they're so cozy. Good. So you can give one to me. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Great. But I love just the idea of having this this plethora of cashmere that you can just put on. And that's the kind of thing to me with my clients in classic cashmere sweaters. I never get rid of them. I always tell them to keep them. That's true. But depending on the level of the cashmere, they're very, I've learned over the years, they're very delicate. If it's a cheaper cashmere, they're very, very delicate. Like they'll pill and like you can't put your arms down. It's like... Yeah, but how much pilling is too much pilling? Just in well, I guess you, 
your average customer, like if they're spending, I don't know, $1,000 for a, a cardigan, you kind of don't want to see pilling within a year. Right? No, I know. But how but, much pilling is too much pilling? Because here's what I've noticed. Like if mm-hmm. I looked at Gucci or Balenciaga or a lot of the brands, they're showing all of these distressed sweaters that come pre-pilled. Well, now, well already has holes well, in their sweaters. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now the deconstruction and, and, and antique-looking pieces are in... You can have holes, wrinkles, pilling. It doesn't <laughs> now. Now it doesn't matter. But like back in, the, I guess the polished days. When when were those days? I feel like they were the nineties. By the way, no, they were. I mean, hmm. <laughs> what's that noise? Well, maybe. I guess you're gonna have to come back. To <laughs> it was like it's like with the frog cashmere comment. Thank well, you if you much. hear weird noises, that's me. My wheels turning in my brain. Because I feel like, because I feel like if I get like for example, some of my clients have their husband's old crew neck cashmere's that are from the 80s or 90s, and they just keep them and you just roll the sleeves and let them be oversized with a pair. That you're just as well off to wear old, beat-up, fabulously soft cashmere Mm -hmm. with a pair of jeans to the market than you are putting on some stupid, you know, new hoodie or something that you got from some other place, right? That's true. I don't know. Like, just... Anything I can do to get my clients out of athletic wear... Amen. (laughs) And into proper clothes. Even if it's an old beat up cashmere. Like an old beat up cashmere with skinny jeans and boots and a rock and Chanel bag. I mean. I just need a little effort. Just a little. Just a little. I don't ask a lot. And we were just talking about how the Europeans. Rich or poor. Rich or poor. Are always stylish. And we're trying to figure out why. That's going to be an entire podcast. We've got to figure out what. why, Why that is. Like, what is the mindset that somebody who is lower middle class living in Paris is dressed better than most wealthy people in the United States? Thank you. And I don't, and I think it has to do with pride. I do too. And confidence. I do too. You know, like it's, like in in most of Europe, if you're a a postal worker, you have pride in your job and you have respect as a postal worker. Even if you're walking down the streets of Paris and there's a man on the street selling flowers, he has a crew neck, a blazer... A great pair of jeans and great shoot. Like, he has a look on. He, I don't know. And they all look like photo shoot. And it might be the yeah. same look he wears every day, five yeah, days a week. Yeah, but at least it's a look. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I'm saying. I'm saying. Okay. Now, today we're going to start with our fabulous vocabulary word. And what is the vocabulary word of the day? The vocabulary word of the day is the dolman sleeve. Oh, like a dome man, like the um, dome man, like um, what was that? The, the uh, Michelin guy? man. Yeah, like the Michelin man doughy. No, the Pillsbury Doughboy. Is that no. what you mean? Dolman, D O L M A N. Dolman. Yes, Dolman. Okay, and is it named after Mister Dolman? No, it was originated in the, in Turkey in the 17th century. Wow. Um, just to give our listeners a visual. Uh, it's basically, if you were to see, like, these, um, how do I say this? These flight suits that kind of will duplicate a bat sleeve. That's kind of... A bat sleeve? Yeah, like a bat sleeve. So it would be a diagonal from your hip or your waist, diagonally to your wrist. 
So if I'm standing straight up, right. and then remember that there's that picture of the evolution of man, and he has his hands up above his head, and exactly. he kind of goes around, around, around. So if I'm standing there, right. looking at you, straight up, and I put my arms out as to a my, T, as make a T. Now, do you draw a diagonal from your hip yeah. or your waist all the way to your uh, wrist? So like wings. Wings, yeah, bat wings, yeah, like a bat wing. Okay, good. So that's yeah. the sleeve. That's the sleeve. So it goes from my hip all the way up to my wrist. wrist. Oh, wow. And they also have one called a bat wing, and that goes they from... They call it bat wing? There's a bat wing and there's a dolman. I have never even heard the term bat wing in Oscar, Lorenta or Chanel. They never say, ooh, we have a new sweater with a bat wing on it. Well, I mean, it's so technical. It's probably, like, in the market papers on the pieces. But, yeah, that's basically what it is. It hides a multitude of sins... So if you're a little thicker in the arms or want to hide any imperfections, all that fabric will hide all of that. Um, it is now basically having a huge resurgence. It started in the 80s and 90s. Every aerobic video you pick up from the 80s or 90s, you'll see Dolman Sleeves. The dynasty you'll see. <laughs> now let me ask you. So yes. Dolman Sleeve, I get the full Dolman Sleeve would be the hip to the wrist. Yes. But I feel like brands like Vince, for example, do a mm -hmm. lot of these really full sleeves that mm -hmm. might start more like mid-torso to the wrist. So Does then that, that count? That would be closer to, like I said before, the bat wing. Okay, because I think that they call them, maybe they're just uneducated and don't know what they're selling. What do they call but them? But I feel like they're calling them dolman sleeves, even if they're like a shorter... Yeah, because like, unless you're super, super technical in within the fashion industry, yeah. Yeah, because it's it, it's a modification of the traditional dolman sleeve. So, so yeah. The, so the idea of a dolman sleeve is it's a very wide, and it's open, right? Mm -hmm. All through there. Voluminous, yeah. Voluminous. Yeah. So okay. it'll go all the way so that when you open your arms dramatically. I think Madonna wore like a white cape that had like a dolman sleeve in it that lit up in her confessions tour at the end on roller skates. Mm, that was a cape. Was it? I, I, was that that that. <laughs> I, I was that at that show. I was at that show, and that was a nod to Xanadu. Yes, and it was a cape okay. that when she spun around and opened it up, yes, it was all lit up. Do you know Bobby Mannix, by the way? I don't. Bobby Mannix was the costume designer of Xanadu, uh, and she is that's as epic. brilliant and wackadoo okay. as the person you'd expect. Okay, Xanadu is one of my favorite musicals ever. I will. So you I have must to meet, meet her. her. You must meet Please. her. Bobby Mannix, like. Love, love, love. Great energy, great spirit, amazing person. You will love, oh my God, that's so funny. No, I'm, I'm obsessed. And I grew up being obsessed with Libby Newton-John, so anything she does or says, I'm I got some stories about her. Really? Uh-huh. When I was doing Pam Anderson's house in the colony, there was a whole Olivia Newton-John thing. I kept taking her parking spot. She did not like that. No, she's a star. <laughs> I met her, actually, I was... Part of the visual team at George Armani in New York, and we were doing a huge retro retrospective at the Armory. And I had been working with celebrities, seeing celebrities. Nothing kind of stunned me or shocked me. She walked into the event, and I was 15 and Aww, stuttering. It's not the best. Yeah, I mean, obsessed with her. I think I'll have that when I meet Tina Turner one day. I think I'll lose my mind. Yeah, she's, yeah, a presence. Yeah. For sure. Okay, so Dolman Sleeve, 17th century in Turkey. Now, why was it in Turkey of all places? Well, I guess, you know, certain, you know, um, cultures, that's where shapes originate from. So this one originated in Turkey. And there's, it started with their robes. Oh, I can royalty, see that. The royalty, the royalty 
their robes had this shape, and that's where it began. Wow. So, like I said, it was huge in the 80s and 90s. So, if you look at any old dynasties, um, who's the boss? Um, and you can see it weekly on the Goldbergs, which is a show I'm obsessed with on ABC. You'll see dolman sleeve dresses on the mom, cashmere and angora sweaters <laughs> okay. with embroideries on it. I just and- want to say, I have another friend named Bonnie. This is ridiculous. Oh. There's so much serendipity today. I have another friend named Bonnie, and uh, she does all the makeup for the Goldbergs. I'm obsessed. Bonnie Flowers. The obsessed best makeup artist show. ever. I did a, a photo shoot with her. So now I have two Bonnies and two connections to the story you're telling. The show's, the show's brilliant. I've heard that, actually. And how they nailed that era it is brilliant. It really, really I, is. When I think of a dolman sleeve, I think of, like, a surprise. I feel like you could have something that's even, you know, like a really beautiful black, long, fully covered dress. Mm-hmm. And then you pull those sleeves and it's, like, rainbow sequins or something really bright. And- they do that sometimes because if, you stand, if you're standing straight up with your arms to your sides, you don't know that you're going to get all that volume until someone raises their arm. Right. So that's, right. that is the detail of what they can do. You can look one way with your hands down, you pull your hands up, it's like, oh, wow. What designer do you think really did most with the Dolman Sleeves? Can you think of one that... Uh, Bob Mackie. Oh, uh, yeah. Bob Mackie did totally. it a ton. Yeah. Uh, you walk, watch any Sunny and Cher shows or any Just Cher. He used it over and over and Halston over again. Halston maybe did it. Halston. You look at any old, um, like, Erte sketches. Who? Erte. Ah, okay. Mm-hmm. I don't know who that is, so you have to educate me. Artist. Okay. Flapper. 20, oh, okay. So that's the like 20s. 20s, yeah. They use it a lot in the 20s. Um, you'll see it even if you reference, uh, what's the movie with Leonardo DiCaprio? Gay Ga- Great Gatsby? The Gay Gap. The Gay Gatsby? No. <laughs> Great Gatsby? <laughs> Williams version. It's called The Gay Gatsby. <laughs> Not The Great Gatsby, but The Gay Gatsby. <laughs> hey! <laughs> but there's a lot of designers that are using it on the runways now, like at Louis Vuitton, Givenchy, Gucci. So, yeah, it's, it's everywhere right now. Wow, that is amazing. I love that. Yeah. And, and I really just, I always I always thought that the Dolman sleeve was the baseball shirt sleeve. Well, that's part of it. Like the raglan sleeve. So the raglan sleeve the is like shoulder, a new The ver- shoulder of a Dolman sleeve is raglan. Yeah, it's a drop So shirt. a raglan sleeve is like you see a baseball shirt. Right. That's yeah. a raglan. And then the Dolman sleeve is really speaking about the volume of fabric between the arm and the body when you put your arm up. Right, yeah. It's really about making a grand entrance, too. 100%. That sleeve does you no good if you're not going to have a big entrance. It does, but it's not conducive for a dinner party, because when you reach for something, you can take, <laughs> you can take everything out on the table. <laughs> so you have to know where you're wearing it. Well, if it's a poor setting at the table, they deserve it, right? Mm, this is true. We need a properly set table anymore, which is a whole nother topic to discuss. Or if you have uh, servants, you shouldn't be reaching across the table. Servants. We don't call them servants anymore, William. William. Service members. How's that? <laughs> help, we call it. Or something else. <laughs> the help. Oh, uh, the help sounds much better. <laughs> I mean, maybe that's not the word you I apologize. <laughs> Attendance? I mean, what do you call it? It's not servants, and it's not the um, help. Dining assistants. No, that's not it either. <laughs> 
I mean, I know there's a formal name of housekeeper. You call people housekeeper. You don't call a maid anymore. You call it a housekeeper. Or maintenance technicians. Maintenance technicians. No. I'm grabbing a straw. Okay. Okay. I hear you. I hear Well, thank you for telling us all about the Dolman Sleeve. Yes. Now we're going to move on to Holt Hooks. And I am going to just tell you, my Holt look is the ode to the suffragettes that Kamala Harris did on her acceptance speech. So she's wearing white, uh-huh. and that suit was gorgeous on her. It was beautiful. And she's not like a little wafy girl either. So for her to put on a white pantsuit and go at it, I'm like, go get them. Mm-hmm. And it was Carolina Herrera, gorgeous. which, you know, good all-American designer, which is funny because she's from Argentina, but we consider her all-American. And, um, and, you know, everywhere I read about the look, they all call it a pussy bow. That's what it's called. The blouse? Yeah. Yeah. That's... But the pussy blow, pussy bow uh-huh. on a blouse, yeah. it just sounds such a, such a crass name. No, only, I think it's only because we've, we've put that onto the word pussy. <laughs> We're not going to talk about that in real No, length, but I... But where does that word come from? Do you know? Or is that another vocabulary? Save that for vocabulary. That's a vocabulary. But the, the, the proper terminology for that blouse is the pussy, is, is, that's right, the pussy bow. Yeah, because it's just, I, I think of it as the prissy bow, because it's just that big, so, and I think it was really smart to have that be, she could still be all in white and just have it be flowing, mm-hmm. so it was a very structured suit, but then when you put a, a blouse like that with such flow to it, I think it's a beautiful, gorgeous way to go, and it was kind of an off-white, if I remember, mm-hmm. so it was really beautiful with her skin tone, it was properly fit, and you know, when she got out there and did that, it made me think about any politician or a politician spouse, they must just have a full-time wardrobe person. Because they're oh, doing, I'm... like, five appearances a day. And oh, they're yeah. Like, all these wardrobe changes and everything has to have a meaning. Like, you're not going to wear the same thing to a factory in Ohio that you're going to wear to a dinner in Santa Monica. Oh, no. That you're going to wear to a stump speech in Pennsylvania. Like, right. it's just interesting how every wardrobe choice that they make has to be thought about and has a background to it. And when I thought about that, I feel like there was really great thinking and thought behind what she chose to do for that one. Yeah, and I actually I thought it was a smart decision because if you think about the pantsuit, it's a masculine power suit, but the pussy bow, bow blouse kind of softens the masculinity of the suit. So I thought it was a beautiful choice. Yeah, yeah. that's awesome. Yeah. How about you? What is your hot look of the uh, week? Well, my hot look for the work of, of the week is the Scaparelli couture gown that Regina King wore to the Emmys. Now, the Emmys, of course, were done uh, virtually because it's in the middle of COVID. But it was a of what COVID. COVID. What's that? That's the mess we're in right now. <laughs> <laughs> But it was a beautiful cobalt blue duchess satin asymmetrical side draped gown. Mm. And since the uh, the DNA of Scaparelli is so is all about surrealism, there were small embroideries on it that were like uh, keyholes, keys, uh, eyelashes, and this was all over the front and the back of this gown. Now I will say. The gown had so much volume around the back, there would be no way if there was an actual in-person 
yeah. event, you'd be able to sit down. And if you could, you would not be able to sit back. <laughs> so it was a bit, there's but a it lot, was, of, so it was lot good, of junk in that trunk. Right. So it was good that it was just visually, it was a, basically an editorial moment for her. Oh, wow. But it would have been hard to wear to an event. Or you could have worn it to the red carpet, but then changed once you went inside. Now, Scaparelli, I don't think I know that brand. Is it like a brand you can buy at a store? Don't, shut your mouth. I Are don't you know. serious? Yes. Elsa Scaparelli? Okay, that's going to have to be... Know. That's going to be another day. I'm a simple person. Okay. I'm a simple person. We, I don't know. I mean, the influence of Salvatore Dali, and it's a whole thing. That's another but day. But wait, Salvatore Dali? What's he have to do with Scaparelli? Well, it's the same era of surrealism. Okay, got it. So, so, so this was an actual vintage gown. That no, no, no. No, no, no. So this, Scaparelli's a new brand. No, no, no. It's an old brand. But it, they, they still reference from the old house. I got it. Okay, good. And then so Scaparelli, I assume, with the Ellie, is Italian. You know what? I have to do the research on that. Okay. Well, I mean, Scaparelli. Scaparelli. I mean, like, Ellie, someone's Italian. That's not yeah, French. It's right. not British. I this mean, is true. I mean, so it could be an American company, but they're... It's, oh, no, no, no. It's definitely not American. That's for sure. <laughs> but they, they're new... The new... Artistic director is a, a guy named Daniel Roseberry. Okay. And I have to say, I was very, very impressed that this kid basically from Texas. Wow. With not a huge fashion background as far as growing up, really, really captured the DNA of the original house, I have to say. Isn't that great? And really made it modern and beautiful. And I love a company that's willing to hire somebody yeah, that doesn't have this big track record, but they really meet with them. They understand their aesthetic, their eagerness, you know, because there's something about these, the big guys, like when a big guy goes and takes over a big house, they're working so much with their ego that they're right. not out to prove much. Right. And it's like when you watch some of this, a master of whatever their work is, they really take it on that they have to earn your... Yeah. trust and your appreciation. Yeah. I remember I saw um, a Broadway show called How to Succeed in Business Without Even Trying and it was starring Daniel and it was starring Daniel Radcliffe after Harry Potter. Yeah, yeah. And I remember... Is that like, the one with the nudity? No. No. Okay. It's a different one. That was the, something about a horse. Yeah. And I... Uh, anyway, this one, I just remember like, oh dear, I don't want to see him. He's going to be some sport... This kid, I call him a kid because I'm old. This kid got up there and performed like we none of us knew who he was. That's and how like he, did. he had to earn our love. And I, I just loved watching him. He was so entertaining and a hundred percent himself. And just I was so oh I love those kinds of anyways. I love yeah, hearing I stories mean, about but that. That's and, that's but that's I think that's the best way to approach any art form. If you take your ego out of it and just do it for the work and for the art. The result's going to be gorgeous. Correct, so. but it's what we're dealing with right now in the fashion business, and it probably in a lot of entertainment genres um, and art genres, is mm -hmm. that the people with the money aren't always willing to take those risks. That's and true. to that's invest true. in someone that doesn't that's have a proven track record or a name. Like, well, whatever that's what that happened. guy, like Ken Jones, goes over to Dior Ohm, right? Yeah, and, and then, did a beautiful job. And did a beautiful, beautiful job, but then it's like, it's all about him, and it's not even about Dior. It's a whole... We are so distracted now. And... Yeah, but I also think that also started... That also started happening when there was too much financial input 
into these houses and not letting the artist just be an artist. Right. When they started being, you know, taken over by these huge financial companies, they're just looking at numbers. They don't care about your influences and your eye and, right. you know. So they're I like, think, look, we make a lot of money on shoes, so design more so shoes. So do more shoes. And the artists might not be that into shoes that that season. They might have five looks that they want to do, but they still have to produce 30 or 40. And I read a great article on Alexander McQueen and just talking about how he just felt so lost at the end that his brand was so much about producing all of these things for licensees. Right. And he just wasn't doing his craft, which he really wanted to do. Right. So, right. Um, I think there's going to be a balance there. But, um, okay, so speaking of powerful people in the industry yeah. and the movers and the shakers. Yeah. We're going to actually introduce a new, I mean, all of this is new, right? Mm -hmm. We're going to actually introduce our new segment called Power Players. Dun, dun, dun. And so today I'm going to walk you through the story of one of uh, the fashion industry's most powerful players and her name is Anna Wintour. I think I've heard of her. Yes. Dame Anna Wintour. That I, I that I did not know. Yep, she is a dame. And uh, she was born in November third, nineteen forty nine. So that makes her seventy three. What's the year again? Forty nine, nineteen forty nine. Yeah. So seventy three years old. Um, she's been the editor of Vogue magazine since 1988. Uh, 85 to 87, she was the editor of British Vogue. They then threw her back over the Atlantic into the U.S. <clears throat> and she's the artistic director of Condé Nast uh, magazine, so the whole company of Condé Nast, since 2013. Mm -hmm. And Condé Nast is a bunch of very big magazines that you know of. I mean, it was huge. It's I mean, back Vogue. in the day, they had... Vogue, GQ, their conglomerate. I think they're Vogue, GQ. I think they have. Don't they have Architectural Digest and all Architectural that stuff? Architectural Digest. There's just they have a bunch, a bunch of magazines, and so she's the creative director of all of that now. Um, going way back, her father Charles Wintour, may he rest in peace, was the editor of the London Evening Standard, and he was that from 1959 to 1976. So that was the big <clears throat> paper in London. And she would get jobs working for him as... Thanks, uh, Dad. Thanks, Daddy. Giving, like, the youth's input. She got to write little columns here and there. So she was able to participate in the, in the newspaper through her dad. She probably kept it young, too. Yeah, being, I think so. You know, he would come it. home and ask her questions about how to... Uh, what's, what's interesting to the kids these days. Uh -huh. Like, that kind of a thing. That's smart. Um, now... Two things that you might know a lot about uh, that most people, that your your average norm, your normal non-fashion person mm -hmm. really got a big sense of who Anna Wintour was from The Devil Wears Prada. Yes. And that was 2006. So that was 14 years ago, that movie. Just FYI. But I do not know how that was 14 years ago. It still, it rings true today. It rings true today. But it's, it's yesterday to me. But and it was based on a book that was written by one of Anna Wintour's assistants. And it's been very clearly noted as being something that is based on her experience working for Anna. 
Then in 2009, there was a documentary done called The September Issue. Yes. Now. Amazing. I did watch it on a plane Uh um, drinking. So I don't remember any of it because I just kind of go in and out. So I think I don't. Well, it it was, they basically went over the process of how they get to producing the biggest issue of the year. Basically. And that particular one was the September issue, which was 900 and something pages. So yes, it was super, the, super it, was the, it was the thickest monthly magazine ever produced mm-hmm. or something. Yeah. It, was, it was crazy. And it says a lot because those pages mean advertising dollars. Oh, yeah. And that's what Anna Wintour was really great at, was bringing advertising dollars. And advertising dollars are what make magazines go round. Yeah. I mean, that's what has a magazine be around or not. Yeah. And that's why a lot of times, if you notice, when you look... Because I remember doing this when I was a kid. If you look at a Vogue magazine, 80% of it is advertising. Oh, yeah. And there's maybe four editorials in it. Yeah, but the thing about the advertising that they get in there... I mean, I'm I'm sure that they have to even approve what advertising goes in. Yeah, But it's beautifully done. Oh, yeah. I can remember getting Vogue magazines in college... And when I was pre-med, that's a whole other story. And <laughs> paging Dr. Harmon, paging Dr. Harmon. Um, I remember tearing out full pages and pages and pages of advertisements. I remember that. I, yeah, they I would were do just the same so, thing. Nordstrom did these ones for years that were like 20 pages long, and they just had these gorgeous looks of high fashion and beautiful models. And there was just something about the aesthetic of it. That really, I mean, I do, the one thing I do hate about Vogue magazine is a lot of times there'll be this close-up on this beautiful model, mm-hmm. and then it'll say, like, cashmere dress, Donna Karen, $3,600. And there's not one to be seen. I mean, no. I mean, all you can see is, like, the shoulder of the dress. I'm like, well, if you're going to a shoulder party, that's the perfect dress for you to wear. <laughs> right. But other than that, it's like, ah, excuse me. Anyway, <laughs> so her mother uh, was an American, married this British guy, and her parents divorced in 1979. Now, I found that to be very interesting and uh, worth mentioning. Yeah. Um, I almost said mention worthy, but really you say worth mentioning. Um, That they were married for 39 years and then got divorced. Is that odd? At that point, I don't, <laughs> see, I, that's something that fascinates me. If right? You're so, if you're with someone almost 40 years, you're there. I mean, you know, just... I don't know. I mean, do you just look the other way and let the other person have their life? Or do you... And what does that do to you as a kid? I mean, my parents have been married for 54 years, 53 years. If my parents at 45 would have said, we're getting a divorce, we want to go find... I would have said, no, you're not. Well, you start to question, like, well, what was all that for? (laughs) Yeah, well, I mean... Was that an act for 40 years? Like... Right. It's odd. You know? So anyway, I found that to be very interesting. And I thought that that... Moment, like that process could have led to Anna's, you know, resistance to happiness and her first marriage that didn't last and didn't work out. And like, was it all connected in some way? Yeah, because you, you never hear anything romantic. Right? Well, she has a new love. She does. Her, yeah. And they've been together now for quite a few years and he's, they're very happy. Wow. Yeah. Not, are they ever and photographed she, together? They I've are. Never... They are. And she's been, um, um, Photographed with him. His oh, name's okay. Dave. Um, David Schaefer was the name of her husband, 
And then now she's been running around. Um, running around, I love Well, that. with this amazing other man. That, and everyone says, oh, she's been so happy now and lighter and all that. So oh, nice. That's been the last, just the last couple we of like, years. We like a happy girl. Now, the other thing I thought was really interesting about that is that she has a stepmother. So Anna Wintour, right, 73 years old, has a living stepmother. Shut up. Yeah, you shut up. Named Audrey Slaughter. I'm like, wow. wow, right? So there's some woman in England. She's like, my daughter, my stepdaughter, Anna Wintour. Oh. I mean, what is she, that woman wearing running around her retirement home? We got to find what she looks we like. We need to find this woman. Um, and Anna has three living siblings. And the other thing about it is, so she's a dame. And the reason that she's a dame is her great, great, great grandmother was a duchess. Oh, Wow. Isn't that wild? Uh, so she went to private schools growing up, obviously. And uh, she was always against the dress codes by always raising her hemline of her skirt. So she was a miniskirt person so from the beginning. cheeky, as we say. Yes. Yes. She's very cheeky. She's very... Um, she liked a short skirt. And that was the thing that she used to always wear when her and Carl Lagerfeld became friends. Huh. That Carl would always put her in mini Chanel miniskirts with jackets. And they were just, that was her look. She had those little skinny legs, and she would just wear that all the time, all over the place. Wow. So, um, the other thing I found to be fascinating was that bob of hers, her yeah. haircut, her famous haircut. That I want to hear. She's had since she was 14. Wow. <laughs> and it, which is interesting in, in, in an industry that's all about trends and changing times and what have you. You'd think she'd kind of... Shake it up. Isn't that... And I think that there's something to be said about the classic of Anna Wintour. Because even if you look at her, most of her lines that she wears and what she... She tends to be, unless it's the Met Gala or something, she tends to be pretty straightforward. Like a sheath dress and a jacket or a cardigan over... You know, she's not a... She's not a big risk taker in, in terms of shape. And it's interesting you say that because when I worked for Caroline Herrera... Bonjour. <laughs> she, there's a certain neckline that all designers know Anna likes. So a lot of designers design that neckline into their collection to make Anna happy. So just to hope that she'll buy it and wear it and include it. Right. In they know what she always gravitates to and what she wears and they do it. And that's like unspoken power. Like when you're actually creating something that is going to have the power of that. That it, it's... It's fascinating. And to also, me. if you you know if you want her to like your collection, okay. you know there's little things you got to do. There are some things you got to do. <laughs> so the other part that I was going to say that I thought was fascinating was when she was in her late teens, she was dating a lot of guys in their twenties. So we call that statutory rape here. Now no. we don't need to. Yeah, don't you start getting daddy issues? Daddy maybe? issues? Maybe I don't know. But she was going through all these older guys. Now I also I would like to think in my fantasy of Anna Wintour that she was just super sophisticated. So she was going out on the night scene with all these DJs and these big players <laughs> in the London nighttime night scene. Well, if you grow up in wealth, you that kind of makes sense. You, I guess your your sensibility is a little more sophisticated, so that makes sense. I guess she um got out of school and she took a training program at Harrods. 
Love to that. learn retail and to be working at Harrods. Um, in 1970, she got her first editorial assistant job at Harper's and Queens, uh, which is a British uh, magazine. Yes. 1975, she became a junior fashion editor at Harper's Bazaar in New York City. Now, so she moved from Harper's and Queens to uh, Harper's Bazaar, which I believe they're sister magazines. So I believe so, yeah. They're in the same company, so was, yeah. you can understand how they could switch over. Mm-hmm. Now, she was fired after nine months. Ouch. Now, what what I read about that was that when she was at Harper's Bazaar, she was changing all... No, no, no. Harper's, Harper's Bazaar. Okay, so she, sorry. So, 1970, she was at Harper's and Queens as mm-hmm. an editorial assistant. Then she went to Harper's Bazaar in 1975. Gotcha. Very important year, the year of my birth. And she only lasted there nine months because she was doing all of these really big photo shoots, blowing out budgets, doing her own thing. So she wasn't sticking to budgets. Okay. And they were um, also from a different point of view than the magazine had done before. So mm. they got rid of them. Ouch. And, um, you know, she then, after that, she took a couple years, enjoyed New York. She was dating some, you know, guy that was successful. Mm-hmm. And they were, you know, it's always interesting to me to listen to these transitions and these people have these big jobs and then they just don't work for a couple years. And then how are they living? So are you having family money or I don't know. Well, yeah, I'm sure there's a nice chunk of family money. Which, in 1978, she got her first job as a fashion editor for a magazine called Viva. I don't even remember that magazine. Of course you don't. It was an adult magazine. I was a child. It was an adult magazine. Okay, you're right. Like, adult magazine. Like, adult. I know. Yeah, I gotcha. I mean, I I think that's charming. I think it's like, okay, she's giving some fashion too. I don't know how much fashion there are there is in a like a adult porn. Oh, adult. Oh, wait. Do you mean like adult like three X's? Yeah, like triple X. Oh wow! I, mean, I don't know how I, many X's it says. Adult mag. Yeah. I mean, I don't think that they meant that it was like hard to read. I think they meant that there's like titties in it. I don't think there's a lot of reading going yeah. on. <laughs> <laughs> so she did that, and then that that magazine got closed down because it just wasn't making any money back then. They couldn't compete with Hustler and all those other things. Wow! I mean, who knew? And then 1980. She uh, replaced Elsa Clinch as fashion <gasps> editor for Blasphemy. I know for a new magazine called Savvy, and Savvy was a magazine that was really designed around this new working woman, mm. and that women were now working um, for their own money. And she had this understanding, and this is a quote from her. She's interest. She said, "This is how women have changed." She's interested in business and money. She doesn't have time to shop anymore. She wants to know what and why and where and how. And if you think about it, that was like the time of working girl. Mm-hmm. That was really women entering the workforce. Mm-hmm. Pantsuits, lapels, women on Wall Street, women in politics. Like it was a change. Women in for, the workforce. Yeah, and it was really a, um, you know... Big change in who the women were, and so she understood that. So she was actually going to make a magazine because before the mat, the you have to think about it. Before that, women were just wives. A few had jobs, but mm-hmm. their job was they drop the kids off at school, and then they would go with their friends. They would just go shopping, and they go hang out, and they'd look around, and and then they'd get done, and then they'd go to the supermarket and go home, make dinner, and yeah. meet the kids, and meet the. So now that they're 
women are working. There's they have their. I own... mean, she was that woman. Yes. Yeah. She was that woman because I'm sure before her it was a lot of men in publishing. Yes, and she got to make her own choices, right? So she got to see that women were now free to make money. That meant they got to spend money and not have to ask permission. So they didn't have to just buy what their husband thought was pretty. They could actually right. do their own, which I, I found to be very fascinating. She really understood that. She also, she did a cover in the 80s, the early 80s, with Rachel Ward. That was... Rachel uh, Ward. Yeah, she was a celebrity back then. I don't know who that is. But anyway. Rachel Ward, okay. And she um, was really the first to understand the power of celebrity. And that's one thing she did to Vogue magazine, and a lot of people hate that. I know you and I have discussed that, but Vogue magazine had celebrity covers, which sold a lot more magazines, and selling magazines brought in more advertisers, and more advertisers brought in more revenue, which brought in more money for shoots, and it was a a big cycle there. Um, In November 1988, so 1985, she became the editor of British Vogue. Then Mm -hmm. 1988, she was... The editor of Vogue. Her first cover was November 1988 for Vogue magazine. And it was the first time jeans had been on the cover of Vogue magazine. (gasps) With that LaCroix. Right? And it was a high and low. So it was a basic jean and this $10,000 LaCroix jacket. And the thing that was interesting about that was that the only reason that she wasn't wearing the matching skirts is that the model was pregnant. Micaela. Micaela. From and Israel. She, and she could not fit in the skirts. They just had to wear her own jeans. She had a little midriff thing going on. And it was this idea that women were on the go. They were working. And the, even the picture, her hair is blowing. She's not even looking at the camera. This is a woman on the go. She's, mm. And so I think that it's such a feminist point of view yeah. that women can do more than just sit there and pose. And I feel like that was the beginning of captured moments being the cover, as opposed to a pose moment. Yeah. Yeah, I think mm-hmm. I think it just powerfully spoke to Vogue's new perspective mm-hmm. on who women were. Well, yeah. Then um, in 2008, there was a bad economy, and it was a bad year for her, and she... Um, they had closed down some magazines. She'd opened up Teen Vogue, um, Men's Vogue, a bunch of other things. And they had great success. And then the markets crashed and everything happened 2008, 2009. And apparently she had a really bad dress at the Met Gala that year. Which, poor thing. She was wearing something from Karl Lagerfeld that everyone thought she looked horrible in. And that was the end of a little bit of an era for her. So she had to kind of reboot. And there was a lot of rumors in that she was going to leave and be done with the magazine. Mm-hmm. Of course, she was not. Um, <laughs> and if I look at her, so she's 73, and she talks a lot about how as things have gotten more competitive and more difficult in the magazine business, mm-hmm. she's more interested. Like the challenge, challenge of it, the yeah. challenge of it's really interesting to her. And she said in a quote, why leave now when things are getting so interesting? Oh, wow. And I think that that is part of, you know, as we live in COVID times, like, it's part of being inventive. Yeah. And people have to learn how to be inventive, be forced, new, make money in change. a different way. And you force change, which I thought was was amazing. Um, as a side note, she was... One thing I thought was beautiful about what she said... Uh, she has lots of quotes out there. <clears throat> I could have just talked to you for about her quotes for 20 minutes. Mm-hmm. And after George, George Floyd was killed this year, 
she, um, on behalf of Vogue magazine, issued an apology to all the staff of the magazine saying they didn't do enough to give space and voice to black editors, designers, hairstylists, makeup artists, and collaborators. Wow. Which I found to be such a beautiful way to say it because it's like she wasn't necessarily even waiting for someone to look to her to say something. It wasn't like the magazine directly did it. But to really understand that there's just this paradigm where it's very Mm white-centric and then there's interesting black people in there. Right. right. So, but what if at the editor's table and at those meetings, there were all of this diversity happening and all these different people in there, it'd be just such a, a different product would come right. out. And a representation of the country that's yeah. buying the magazine. Yeah, or the world that's buying the yeah. magazine. Because, yeah. I mean, American Vogue is a magazine that's, that's, that's shipped true. all over the world and that's people true. enjoy from all over the world. And uh, the other last thing I'm going to tell you about Miss Anna Wintour, you know, her signature... Sunglasses. Mm-hmm. There's several reasons for them. So number one, she loves wearing those to shows because they cover her eyes, mm-hmm. and you can't tell her reactions to the collections when she's wearing those. Which is smart because I'm right? sure the people in the, oh, I'm sure everyone's looking at her responses. Yeah, I interviewed her see. once. I interviewed her once at Fashion Week for oh, wow. when I was doing uh, covering the Fashion Week for E. And I said, so, are you ever in a collection or in a show when you're like, oh my God, this is so horrible. When is this going to be over? And um, she just looked at me. She goes, yes, often. (laughs) And then she started smiling. And I was like, oh my gosh, that's so great. I got her to say something like that. So um, I can definitely see that. The other thing is she uh, has deteriorating eyesight. And those glasses are actually um, prescription lenses. Wow. And um, so she's, you know, has major eye problems. So Well, as you know, if you, if you think about it, as you know, sitting front row at those shows, those lights are extremely bright. Yes. So imagine... I mean, I, I think that also some people just have... My grandmothers, both of them could read the paper. Oh. Without glasses, oh, wow. well into their eighties and nineties. Okay, and I like turned forty, and I swear I'm like, what? What, what does that say at a menu at a restaurant? But that's so, my point. It's yeah. the exposure. I think yeah. it's because you're exposed. Maybe I don't know. But I, don't, I just also think it's genetic, and some people have better eyes than other people that's have. That, yeah, maybe they did not have enough carrots. I don't know. <laughs> anyway, that's my Anna, and I I feel like she gets a tough rap. Because people say she's so hard and difficult and all that. And I really, really personally believe that's because she's a woman. And if she was a man behaving the same way... Oh, they wouldn't even say anything. They wouldn't say anything. Yeah, yeah, for sure. You know, and I think that it takes something to have a career with that longevity in it. And I think it's something that people can respect. And, you know, people obviously have learned how to work around her Mm -hmm. and to do what she says to do and um, takes control that way. So you can either play with her or not play with her. Well, you can't deny her reign. So, I mean, if she's still in the game running stuff, so... And she's she's had a lot of people working under her that became really big, and then they realized that Anna was never leaving. So they've gone off and run other magazines. Mm -hmm. And she just says, well, that's just part of the process of this. And she's never, you know, thought that that was a bad thing. People Mm -hmm. have to get up and get their career and move on to the next thing. So I found that to be quite 
respectful to. I'm not sure what the happy ending will be with that. I hope that history reminds thinks of her well, remembers right. her well. Right. Um, but I really think we have lots left to see about her. I think I, so. I think this, he has a lot more to say, and there'll be a lot more happening with her, especially over the next 10 years to see if there is printed Vogue. I think, you know, I have a gut feeling the pendulum is going to swing back. Yeah. To printing. I really do, too. I think that people, I've been noticed with my clients that live in the right zip codes this year for holiday, they're getting tons of catalogs in the mail again. Yeah. And I think that people get tired of looking on their devices. And there's something great about flipping a page and being able to see things that way versus having to go on and on and on and flipping all these screens and... I actually, I, I absorb the information better when it's tangible and I can touch it. When I read one thing on a computer, it's not the same thing as when I read it in a book or in a magazine. So I guess, I don't know. We're old school, but who knows what's going to happen. But I'll tell you what. We shall see. When we know what's going to happen, you're going to find out just by listening to our next podcast with What You're Wearing. What You're Wearing. And we'll see you next time. See you later.